Hi everyone, welcome to The Adventures of Mr. Chris. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world and ask why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the Book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. From our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that people are worried about the end of the world. In this week's show, we look at two possible ways the world might end. We start with the issue of supervolcanoes and look at the role of volcanic activity in several of the past mass extinctions on Earth, including the end Permian event, better known as the Great Dying, 250 million years ago, when more than 70% of life on land and 90% of life in the oceans went extinct. Look at some of these major volcanic events in the past, such as Toba and Tambora, Mount St. Helens, and the Yellowstone supervolcano. Consider how these events gave us the year without a winter and even Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. From there, we'll turn to the challenge of nuclear weapons and the invention of the first atomic bomb tested at the Trinity sites on July 16, 1945. We'll explore how fears about nuclear war and nuclear winter shaped American and Russian fears during the Cold War, and how efforts since the mid-1980s to draw down nuclear stockpiles may be at risk today as President Trump and the U.S. administration tosses decades of nuclear non-proliferation work out the window and calls for a ramping up once again of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And finally, don't forget, October 27th is Arkhipov Day, celebrating the decision of a young Russian submarine officer during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 that stopped us from launching into a possible nuclear World War III. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my End of the World class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So with no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our week nine lecture for the End of the World class, where we're going to be talking about supervolcanoes and nuclear threats. So just a reminder here, we're working through Brian Walsh's book, End Times, A Brief Guide to the End of the World, looking at a range of different possible scenarios and situations that could possibly cause the end of the world as we know it. And as Walsh reminds us, part of the challenge is how do we deal with questions of existential risk, or in other words, with risks that we have no prior experience with. Now, as we've seen, there's been a number of major volcanic eruptions over Earth's history, and Walsh talks about the potential risks that we face from these volcanoes erupting being probably some of the most common and most deadly risks that we face in terms of natural risks. And a great example of this was the super eruption of Toba that took place on the Indonesian island of Sumatra about 74,000 years ago. Now, the Toba eruption remains the single largest volcanic event in the last 100,000 years, and scientists estimate there was about 9 million tons of sulfuric rock and dust which were thrown up into the atmosphere from that volcano over the roughly two-week period that it was erupting. And as much as 700 cubic meters of volcanic ash and magma was ejected in that process. Now, to kind of give you a sense, in 1980, when Mount St. Helens erupted in Washington, which was the largest eruption in the United States in recent history, if you imagine that a 1980 event, and then compared to Toba, Toba was essentially 2,800 times as explosive as Mount St. Helens. So as Walsh notes, at the moment when Homo sapiens was far from the world-dominating force we are today, Toba was our ultimate trial. It was also a warning. The most dangerous natural existential risk we face comes not from the skies above us, but from the ground beneath our feet. And scientists estimate that the impact of Toba's explosion may have been enough with everything combined, the atmospheric um, impacts, more sulfur, blocking the sunlight, etc., that global temperatures could have dropped anywhere from 18 to 30 degrees for several years. And you can imagine that that would have been uh, hugely devastating for everything that relied on plants and sunlight, which is much of life on Earth. And as, as Walsh um, prompts us to think about, imagine a winter that lasted for years, like something out of the Game of Thrones. Now, we learned a little bit about how we measure volcanoes 
and this through what's called a volcanic explosivity index or VEI and that basically is a ranked system from 0 to 8 that tells us about the amount of uh, tephra or the sort of volcanic shards that are ejected out in the course of the explosion and this ranking scale was developed in 1982 by a, a scientist who were studying the 1980 Mount St. Helens eruption. So prior to 1982, this index was not something that scientists had. And you can see here from the diagram on the right, some of the past incidents, for example, Mount St. Helens, Pinatubo in 1991, Tambora, which we'll talk about in a minute, in 1815, and then much earlier, the Yellowstone Caldera eruption about 600,000 years ago. And you get a sense every time you go one uh, sort of number up on the scale, you're going by essentially a factor of 10. So a change from a 3 to a 4 or a 5 to a 6 or a 6 to a 7 are quite significant. And it's really this number 8, the VEI index, the supervolcanoes that are the ones that we're most worried about in terms of potential end of the world scenario. So let's look a little bit more at some of the historical details we know about some of these explosions and why they may have been so powerful. Around 74,000 years ago, in what's now Sumatra, a volcano called Toba exploded. It was the largest known eruption in at least the past two million years, a whole order of magnitude bigger than the 19th century eruption of Tambora, which is the largest volcanic eruption in recorded history. The Toba eruption produced 2,800 cubic kilometers of magma, deposited meters-thick layers of ash, and spewed thousands of tons of sulfuric acid and sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. It may have caused global temperatures to dip by as much as 10 degrees Celsius for the next decade with some cooling lasting nearly a thousand years. This was the Middle Paleolithic period, when the height of human technology was stone tools and fire. So you get why scientists would think the giant explosion had a serious impact on the human population. But the evidence seems to show that humanity was mostly fine, and we're not totally sure why. The main climate effects from volcanoes come from the ash and sulfurous gases they belch out. After a big eruption, this stuff can circulate in the atmosphere for years, reflecting sunlight and causing global cooling, hence that possible decade-long volcanic winter caused by Toba. It makes sense that an endless global winter would be bad news for the planet's inhabitants. For comparison, the eruption of nearby Tambora turned 1816 into what became known as the year without a summer, and led to crop failure and famine around the world. And Tambora only put out 175 cubic kilometers of the stuff, compared to Toba's thousands. So in the 1990s, a scientist named Stanley Ambrose proposed what's been called the Toba Catastrophe Theory. His idea was that the eruption might have nearly wiped out humanity, reducing the global population from around 100,000 people to around 10,000. People of African ancestry are more genetically diverse than other humans, which seems to suggest that the rest of humanity experienced a genetic bottleneck at some point, a dramatic drop in the population that resulted in a loss of genetic diversity. According to the Toba catastrophe theory, the giant volcanic eruption and the global winter that followed were the culprits. An African's tropical home, the theory goes, helped buffer them against the effects of the volcanic winter and prevented the huge population declines that happened in other areas. Which sounds plausible, but as we've continued to look for evidence of the so-called Toba catastrophe, things have become a lot less clear. For one thing, scientists don't all agree on just how bad the eruption's effects on the climate actually were. In 2010, researchers created a mathematical model of the eruption's possible climate effects based on how the particles it shot into the atmosphere would have reflected solar energy. Their results showed that the eruption's global effects may have been milder and shorter-lived than originally theorized, like a 3 to 5 degree drop in temperature for 2 to 3 years instead of a 10 degree drop that lasted a decade. That's still a really big deal, a drop of just one degree was enough to cause the year without a summer. But maybe it wasn't a big enough deal to kill off 90% of the world's population. Recent research has also found that charcoal and plant particles in sediment samples from Africa's Lake Malawi don't show any big change in plant life before and after the eruption, which is something you'd definitely expect to see if there had been a 10-year-long winter. And the more archaeologists look for evidence of what actually happened to humans around this time, the more it looks like the answer is nothing too devastating. A recent study from the coast of South Africa didn't find any interruption in human activity there. There is a layer of tiny volcanic glass shards from the eruption in archaeological deposits, but the human artifacts from before and after are pretty much the same. Some of the researchers involved suggested that living in a warm coastal area with lots of resources might have helped people there thrive despite the eruption. But archaeological studies from much closer to the blast zone in India don't show much change in human communities there around the time of the eruption either. Humans probably were affected by Toba. The 
the largest volcanic eruption in our history would be hard to ignore. But the latest evidence makes it seem pretty unlikely that 90% of the global population was killed off, and today most scientists consider the Toba catastrophe theory to be debunked. But that still leaves the question of what caused the genetic bottleneck as humans were expanding out of Africa. The most widely accepted explanation today is that it was a simple case of what's called the founder effect. Only relatively small groups of humans ever made the trek out of Africa, limiting the genetic diversity of their descendants as they populated the rest of the world. Perhaps the closest parallel to Toba threatening the world today is the massive volcano underneath Yellowstone National Park. One of the Yellowstone supervolcano's past eruptions around 2 million years ago was almost on the scale of Toba, spewing about 2,500 cubic kilometers of magma. And today, humans rely on way more technology that would be negatively affected than we did at the time of Toba, from agriculture to airplanes. In some ways, our society is more fragile now than it was back then. So a modern Yellowstone eruption would be really bad news, but volcanologists say the chances of Yellowstone blowing up anytime soon are incredibly small, so don't lose too much sleep over it. Ultimately though, even an eruption as large as Toba's didn't really alter the course of humanity's genetic history. Mind-bogglingly huge volcanic eruptions like Toba are a reminder of just how violent our planet's geology can be, but in this case, it also showed that our species can be pretty resilient. Go human! So as we saw in that video, we've talked about these five major mass extinction events in Earth's past history. Some have been more destructive and some have been less, but by far the biggest one that we know of is what is referred to as the end Permian extinction event, or sometimes in geological books you'll see it called the Permian Triassic extinction. We know it more commonly as the Great Dying. And this occurred about 250 million years ago, and again was linked to volcanic activity. In this case, um, most scholars think the Siberian traps in uh, sort of northern Russia and the Siberian area. So essentially you had uh, hundreds of thousands of years of constant volcanic eruptions and magma flows across Siberia, causing you know, changes to the air, to the water, to the chemical makeup of the atmosphere, to certainly the whole land in that particular area. And that sort of whole phenomenon led to the extinction of about 70% of life on land and 90 or perhaps some estimates go up to 95 or 96% of all life in the ocean. So you can see there on the right this chart looking at some of the extinction events in the past and you can see right there on the border between the uh, Permian and the Triassic where that great dying took place and you can see that steep drop off in the number of genetic families and sort of genetic diversity which then made rise for both the age of reptiles that we think of with the Jurassic period we looked at before and the age of mammals which is where we come from. So as Brian Walsh notes, if Toba marked the moment when humanity was nearly driven to extinction, the great dying nearly ended the story of life altogether. And both began with a volcano, a reminder that as historian Will Durant once wrote, civilization exists by a geological consent subject to change without notice. So no natural force on earth puts humans at greater existential peril than a supervolcano. Now, there are kind of four major areas of supervolcanic activity around the world. You can see marked here, essentially the west coast of the United States, the sort of western coast of southern South America going down um, south of Ecuador towards Chile, and then the, the sort of volcanic island area where we're talking about with Toba and others in sort of the South Pacific around Indonesia, and then a final ring that includes sort of Japan and up along the East Asian coast into parts of Russia. So those are kind of the four areas where we see the most likely possibilities of either a VEI-7 or a VEI-8 volcanics um, explosion. And if you think about that same map overlaid on the continental plate system and sort of volcanic activity, you can see the purple dashes on this map represent those sort of four supervolcanic areas. And as you can see, they match really well with where you have plate convergence plates um, on major parts of the earth itself. So it makes sense that those areas are going to be higher stress points where you're more likely to have the possibility of volcanic activity. Now one challenge in better understanding the global impacts of a modern supervolcanic eruption is just the amount of uncertainty involved in that situation. Because there's so many different factors involved when it happened, where it happened, how long it went on for, how explosive and how much magma was involved in the eruption itself. All of those vary pretty widely. And so it's really hard to do an accurate model to capture all of those different events. And then also factor in how the climate would likely change, how ecosystems would be disrupted, and how disruptive these activities would be to both you know, in individual states' economies, but to the much larger global economy. 
as we heard in that video, we are much more interconnected today, which also makes us more vulnerable and fragile to disruptions. And also more importantly, the models that scientists use are based on past experience and past volcanoes. And unfortunately, that tells us nothing about the future, because as we talked about last week, with this debate between uniformitarianism and catastrophism, the past is not necessarily an indicator of the future, even though we tend to think of it that way. And as Walsh notes, that's an occupational hazard of dealing in existential risk. We look to the past analogs to try to understand and forecast how future events might unfold, but existential risk, by definition, are on a level that we have never known. Now, a good case of this in point is Mount Tambora, which we just heard a little bit about, which was a volcanic eruption in Indonesia on April 5th, 1815, which had profound impacts all over the world. Now, certainly no one on April 4th could have predicted the ramifications of that explosion and the way it would sort of ripple around the world. And in fact, many of the impacts weren't even apparent until many decades, or in some cases, more than a century later, thanks to scientific advances in both volcanology and um, modeling of climate and other impacts. So Tambora was a, what's a VEI-7 on the scale for its eruption. Um, as we heard, it was the most powerful and deadly volcanic event in recorded human history, with about 100,000 people estimated to have died, both in the immediate area and in surrounding areas. The plume of volcanic ash that went up from that eruption basically circled around the entire planet, disrupting weather patterns and leading to what in many places in 1816 was known as the year without a summer. Average temperatures around the world dropped about 2.7 degrees in that decade from 18, excuse me, 1810 to 1820. It was also the coldest decade on historical records. We saw epidemics of cholera and typhus exploding in different parts of Europe, which were then added to mass starvations and crop failures because of these darkened skies, the change in the sulfuric content and the lack of sunlight. And that was true in Europe and Asia and even in the Americas. In fact, things were so bad in parts of Europe that you had a huge spike of European immigrants coming to the United States with uh, immigrant European immigration doubling between 1816 and 1817 as a result of people fleeing these failing uh, crops and homesteads across much of Europe and parts of Asia. And even in the United States, you had tens of thousands of settlers who were living, let's say, in the Northeast or parts of the East Coast who headed west across the Appalachian Mountains into what was at that time the Northwest Frontier, looking for new areas to farm and to try to settle that they thought would have a better climate. So as Walsh argues, while Tambora and other eruptions of its class teach us is that volcanoes can have global effects, ones that continue well after the volcano itself has fallen silent. We can't prevent a volcanic eruption, at least not yet, probably never, but we can control how our society responds to the shock of a catastrophe. Now, I think for me personally, one of the most fascinating tidbits of history about the Tambora eruption in 1815 is that it gave us Frankenstein. So as um, Mary Shelley wrote in the introduction to her uh, Frankenstein or the modern Prometheus, she notes that in the summer of 1816, we visited Switzerland and became the neighbors of Lord Byron, but it proved a wet, ungenial summer, and incessant rain often confined us for days to the house. Some volumes of ghost stories fell into our hands, and Lord Byron proposed we will each write a ghost story. And that summer in 1816, this year without a summer, is the moment that gave the inspiration to Mary Shelley to give us Frankenstein. So you can see there on the right a copy from her original notes that she made during that summer while she was in Switzerland. And you can see part of that story there, really famous section. How can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavored to form? His limbs were in proportion and I had selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God. His yellow skin scarcely covered the work of muscles and arteries beneath. His hair was of a lustrous black and flowing, his teeth of a pearly whiteness. But these luxuriances only formed a more horrid contrast with his watery eyes. They seemed almost of the same color as the dun white sockets in which they were set, his shriveled complexion and straight black lips. So, you know, the inspiration for Shelley for thinking about horror and human nature came out of the sort of spillover effects of the Tambora eruption in 1815. 
Now, we heard a little brief mention about the Yellowstone Super Caldera and the possibility of that erupting. That's probably our most significant worry in North America and the United States. But um, there's only been three major eruptions of Yellowstone in the past 2.1 million years. And the risks of Yellowstone exploding today are pretty low, 0.00014%, or about 1 in 730,000. Yet it still remains the most likely catastrophic natural disaster that we would face here in the United States. So for example, one FEMA study estimated that if the Yellowstone supervolcano were to erupt, it could cost upwards of $3 trillion to the U.S. in economic and associated damages and destruction uh, which would span much of the Midwestern United States. And it's important to note that because if the U.S., um, particularly the agricultural and grain belt, were to collapse, about 50% of the global grain supply would vanish with that. And that would certainly have a major disruption on you know, pretty much every country. In addition to that, you would have disruptions to the electrical and transportation systems that could effectively put the United States into prolonged power blackout and depending on the extent of damage to the transformer networks that could last perhaps years, as our author notes. But even more important, perhaps, is that the, the volcanic ash that would fall out from this would essentially render much of the agricultural soil in a pretty wide region unusable because of that volcanic ash or the tephra, which would not only make the soil unusable for crops, but it would also get into water and air systems and essentially shred all of those systems up, which would then further add to the public health issues. And then on top of all that, you would have a major refugee crisis as people would be fleeing a pretty significant area if a supervolcanic eruption were to take place there. So one 2006 study predicted that if Yellowstone were to erupt, it could cause global temperatures to drop by as much as 18 degrees, and those effects could last for as long as a decade. So as Walsh argues, in every past catastrophe, whether it was a hurricane, an earthquake, or a flood, most of the U.S. remained untouched, which meant that a safe part could deliver aid to take in refugees from affected regions. But there would really be no corner of the continental U.S. that would be exempt from the effects of a supervolcano. Volcanoes have caused mass extinction on this planet, and in fact, he argues they are the serial killers of life. Volcanoes may give off several warning signs before an eruption, including small earthquakes beneath the volcano, subtle swelling of the ground surface, and increased emission of heat and gases from volcanic vents. While volcanoologists who advise government officials regarding if or when evacuation plans are enacted take these precursors very seriously, these signs are no guarantee an eruption is imminent. That's why some people were concerned about the 5.7 magnitude earthquake that shook near Salt Lake City on March 18th, and a 6.5 magnitude earthquake in Idaho on March 31st. Naturally, people were wondering if these earthquakes were related with the Yellowstone caldera. So, should you be worried about a possible mega-colossal eruption of the Yellowstone supervolcano? Or, a better question is, should humanity be worried? Before we answer these questions, it's important to know the nature and history of volcanic eruptions. To better understand the rank of eruptions, scientists created the Volcanic Explosivity Index System to classify the magnitude, or relative measures, of the explosiveness of volcanic eruptions, with a scale from 0 to 8. In the year 79 of the Common Era, Mount Vesuvius violently spewed a deadly cloud of superheated tephra to a height of 33 kilometers, ejecting molten rock, pulverized pumice, and hot ash at 1.5 million tons per second, ultimately releasing a 100,000 times the thermal energy of the Hiroshima-Nagasaki bombings. It buried the ancient city of Pompeii under four to six meters of ash. The eruption lasted for two days. By the evening of the second day, the eruption was over leaving only a haze in the atmosphere. To get a better picture of what this eruption must have been like, we can look at the 1980 eruption of Mount St. Helens. Both volcanic eruptions have a Category 5 explosivity index, with more than a cubic kilometer ejector volume. The eruption of Mount St. Helens has often been declared as the most disastrous volcanic eruption in US history. The volcanic plume rose 24 kilometers into the atmosphere and deposited ash in 11 US states and even in two Canadian provinces. 
Approximately 57 people died and it caused about $1.1 billion of property damage. What might be worse than a level 5 volcanic eruption you might ask? A level 6. The 1883 eruption of Krakatoa in Indonesia was one of the deadliest and most destructive volcanic events in recorded history. The explosions were so violent that they were heard as far away as 3,110 kilometers in Western Australia. At least 36,417 deaths are attributed to the eruption and the 30 meter high tsunamis it created. During the full scale eruption, 70% of the island of Krakatoa was destroyed as it collapsed into the caldera, releasing more than 20 million tons of sulfur. As if this was not bad enough, in 1927, Anak Krakato, meaning Child of Krakatoa, emerged from the caldera. In the late 2018 eruption, it caused a deadly tsunami, with waves up to 5 meters making landfall, killing 437 people. The 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora was the most powerful in human recorded history, with a volcanic explosivity index of 7. Its impact was so great that volcanic ash obscuring the sun reduced global temperatures, and the year 1816 was known as the Year Without a Summer, as snow fell even in June in places like New York. But even a level 7 eruption is relatively small compared to a level 8 megacolossal eruptions of supervolcanoes. The volcanic explosivity index, besides the first two levels, is a logarithmic scale, meaning each level of eruption is at least 10 times more powerful than the previous one. The Yellowstone supervolcano, located in Yellowstone National Park in the western United States, is a level 8 example. The caldera formed during the last of three super eruptions over the past 2.1 million years. The Huckleberry Ridge eruption 2.1 million years ago, which created the Island Park caldera, and the Huckleberry Ridge Tuff. The Mesa Falls eruption 1.3 million years ago, which created the Henry Fork caldera and the Mesa Falls Tuff and the Lava Creek eruption approximately 640,000 years ago, which created the Yellowstone caldera and the Lava Creek tuff. If the Yellowstone supervolcano was going to erupt tomorrow, it would release more than 2 billion tons of sulfur into the atmosphere, and more than 1,000 cubic kilometers of rock and volcanic ash into the sky. Large parts of Idaho, Montana and Wyoming would be buried in one meter of volcanic ash. Besides killing countless thousands of lives, in the immediate aftermath of the eruption, it would create the largest refugee crisis in human history. And the reduction in global temperatures due to volcanic ash and droplets of sulfuric acid and water obscuring the sun would cause a volcanic winter lasting over a decade, which would cause crop failures everywhere, resulting in extremely large famines. Millions, if not billions, would starve to death. But is there any evidence that a super eruption is imminent in our lifetime. According to Mike Poland, the scientist in charge at Yellowstone Volcano Observatory, the recent earthquakes in Utah and Idaho are not related with Yellowstone. The earthquakes are rather related to mountain building processes or tectonic extensions in the Western United States. Also, the analysis of earthquake data in 2013 showed the magma chamber beneath Yellowstone is 80 kilometers long and 20 kilometers wide. It also has 4,000 cubic kilometers underground volume, of which 6-8% is filled with molten rock. This is about 2.5 times bigger than scientists had previously imagined it to be. However, scientists believe that the proportion of molten rock in the chamber is much too low to allow another super eruption. Thanks for watching. So, as you can see from that, there's a lot of possible effects that are incorporated when we think about eruptions of volcanoes, and particularly a VEI-8 supervolcanic eruption like Yellowstone. So we've got the initial eruption time, we've got the, you know, the fire and brimstone raining down from the volcano itself as kind of an immediate danger right as and shortly after the eruptions happening, followed by, you know, possible tsunamis or um, other localized disruptions. And then you get the sort of fallout of the ash, both in form of sulfuric rain and this kind of tephra coming down. And then over longer periods of time, you have the disruption of all these global supply chain that we've been mentioning. And then obviously the climate effects as you think about what would happen if the temperatures were to drop a few degrees 
or even um, double digits over the course of um, you know a period of years or longer. So all these put together are part of what make a uh, supervolcanic eruption so dangerous is because it's not just in that immediate area, but the effects ripple out into a pretty extensive um, story. Now, that's one of the challenges that we're looking at this week when we think about how the world might end, and in particular, the perhaps most dangerous natural existential risk we face. But there's another risk equally as dangerous, and some would argue more likely, which is not a natural existential risk, but is really the first human-made existential risk, and that is nuclear technologies, and particularly atomic weapons. So pictured here, you can see the first atomic weapons test at the Trinity Nuclear Site in New Mexico, July 16, 1945. And this is photos taken at 0.025 seconds after the initial detonation of the gadget as the nuclear fission was taking place. Now, we know that for a number of years, scientists with the Manhattan Project were secretly working on developing the ability to create a nuclear weapon, which could be then used to help in the fight against Nazis and fascists during World War II. So you can see a picture there on the left, the gadget, which was the actual um, device with the explosives and the uranium inside. And then you can see the tower picture there in the center, which was known as Zero. So uh, when we talk about ground zero, that was literally where the gadget and the explosion in Tower Zero um, hit the ground, hence the term ground zero. And then you can see pictured on the right there, the, the monument that exists today at the Trinity site, um, testifying or sort of signifying that first nuclear explosion on July 16th, 1945 at 5.30 a.m. We know from the history of the Manhattan Projects and testing that there was a lot of guesswork that went into what would happen the moment after that detonation took place. And perhaps one of the most famous moments um, from that is the recollections from Robert Oppenheimer, who was one of the lead scientists on this project, who recalled a line from the Bhagavad Gita, one of the Hindu sacred texts from India, which said, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. And that image and the significance of that sort of moment when man grasped nuclear technology for the first time really marks a significant change in world history and world politics. And for those of you that study kind of environmental sciences, you know, that moment in 1945 is often debated as the possible start time for this sort of new geologic age that many people consider our world to be living in, known as the Anthropocene. Now, we know that that date of that test was important because there was a lot of pressure on the Manhattan Project team members to come up with uh, demonstrable evidence that President Harry Truman, who was president at the time, would be able to take with him to his meeting at the Potsdam Conference, which was just the day after the test took place because he wanted to be able to kind of know in the back of his head in negotiations that the U.S. had a trump card. And, and more importantly, wanted to convince Russia to come on board um, in the fight against Japan. Now, we know sort of after the fact that, in fact, Stalin knew about the test and had already been briefed on it. And in fact, uh, Russian spies had smuggled out some of the plans for the construction of um, sort of the gadget itself, although Truman and the U.S. was not aware of that at this time. So reflecting that next day, July 17th, on his meeting um, with Joseph Stalin, Truman wrote, After the usual polite remarks, we got down to business. I told Stalin I am no diplomat, but usually say yes and no to questions after hearing all the arguments. It pleased him. I asked him if he had the agenda for the meeting. He said he had and that he had some more questions to present. I told him to fire away. He did, and it's dynamite. But I have some dynamite too, which I am not exploding now. And of course, that's Truman referring to the fact that he had just been notified the day before of the successful nuclear test. So about a week later, Truman's reflecting on this experiment on the 16th. And he says, we have discovered the most terrible bomb in the history of the world. It may be the fire destruction prophesied in the Euphrates Valley era after Noah and his fabulous ark. And of course, he's referring to some of the biblical references to the end times there. 
An experiment in the New Mexico desert was startling, to put it mildly. 13 pounds of the explosive caused a crater 600 feet deep and 1,200 feet in diameter, knocked over a steel tower a half mile away and knocked men down 10,000 yards away. The explosion was visible for more than 200 miles and audible for 40 miles and more. It seems to be the most terrible thing ever discovered, but it can be made the most useful. And that's one of the famous quotes from Truman that's often um, referenced in thinking about nuclear power and nuclear technology. So we know the gadget that they tested at the Trinity site had the explosive force of about 22 kilotons, which is far larger than any bomb that had been used previously in any kind of military conflict. And then you can see pictured there on the right, a uh, mock-up of Little Boy, which was the uranium bomb dropped by the B-29 bomber Enola Gay on Hiroshima a week later, which had the explosive force of about 15 kilotons. And then just a little bit later after that, the Fat Man plutonium bomb, which was dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th, which had an explosive payload of 21 kilotons. So as I mentioned, on August 6, 1945, 8.15 Japanese time, the Nola Gay bomber dropped the little boy on um, Hiroshima, detonating the bomb about 1,900 feet above the city. And that immediate explosion and the heat wave and shock wave that came out from that explosion essentially instantly decimated 70 to 80,000 people who were vaporized instantaneously, wiping out approximately one-third of the population in the city. And then uh, estimates are that another 70,000 or so were injured from explosions, uh, buildings, glass and other debris, and the U.S. military reconnaissance estimated that about 69% of the city around the initial blast site was destroyed. Uh, shortly after that bombing, President Truman released a public statement about the attacks, noting in part, 16 hours ago, an American airplane dropped one bomb on Hiroshima, an important Japanese army base. The bomb had more power than 20,000 tons of TNT, it had more than 2,000 times the blast power of the British Grand Slam, which is the largest bomb ever used in the history of warfare. The Japanese began the war from the air at Pearl Harbor. They have been repaid many-fold, and the end is not yet. With this bomb, we have now added a new and revolutionary increase in destruction to supplement the growing power of our armed forces. I shall give further consideration and make further recommendations to the Congress as to how atomic power can become a powerful, and forceful influence towards the maintenance of world peace. So when we think about the context of different explosions and how explosive these were, uh, you can see two different charts here giving us a way to kind of visualize the power of these. So you've got Little Boy, which was dropped on Hiroshima at about 15 kilotons. The Castle Bravo, which is a slightly later detonation uh, US test that was done at about 15 megatons. So a significant increase from Little Boy at 15 kilotons. You have the SAR bomb, which was by large the biggest nuclear explosion um, that we have any record of or that we're aware of, um, done by Russia, and that was 50,000 kilotons or 50 megatons. So you can see just how significantly different the explosive power of those are from a 15 kiloton Little Boy to a 50 megaton Sarabomba. Now to give us um, a little bit of perspective, Japan is the only country that's had a nuclear bomb dropped on it, and the impacts of that continue to haunt Japanese um, psyche, Godzilla being perhaps Gojira in Japanese, the classic example of the way that the nuclear shadows continue to shape Japanese society. Now you can see here a picture, the shadow left behind um, from someone that was instantly incinerated after the explosion, which is now um, on exhibit at the Hiroshima Peace Memorial Museum, and a tricycle that one of the residents donated that was 1,500 meters away from uh, the center of the explosion, um, which a young three-year-old boy was riding and died um, shortly after the event from the heat and burns of that. But you can just see how disfigured that tricycle is. So to give you some context, that little boy bomb, when it went off, you can see the blast radius, the sort of the two inner circles of these four circles on the screen here would have been the areas where essentially everything would have been vaporized or destroyed instantly. And then the two further rings out are where additional fire and shock damage would have taken place. Now to give us a little bit of reference, so this was the little boy at 15 kilotons. If we imagine what that would have looked like if that hit Chico, you can see that same scale 
15 kiloton bond being dropped on Chico would have had um, a significant fallout taking uh, pretty much all of CSU Chico um, with it in the explosion. Now, if we think about that same um, location of Chico, but with the larger Tsar bomb that was dropped in Russia, the 50 megatons, you can see a huge area and just how much difference the explosive potential would have been from the 15 kiloton to a 15 megaton. And then if you imagine the Tambor volcano we were talking about, which was a VEI-7 on the index, um, there's a bit of debate about how many actual megatons the explosion uh, may have released. Some estimates suggested maybe as much as a thousand megatons. But you can imagine uh, the explosive force of something like that would have gone almost all the way down to Sacramento uh, if we look at Chico as the heart. So it gives you an idea of the explosive potential of something like Tambora as a seven. And we can imagine if this would be something on the scale of the Yellowstone supervolcano we were just talking about, that scale would be um, even further more significant. So I wanna just uh, sort of look for one moment at the experience of Japan in this moment and how um, Japan as a society as well as Japanese individuals have tried to make sense of this disaster. Ceremonies were held in Hiroshima, Japan today to mark the 75th anniversary of the world's first atomic bomb attack. A few days later, the U.S. dropped a second nuclear bomb on Nagasaki, forcing the Japanese to surrender and ending World War II. Well, each year there are fewer and fewer survivors left. Ramian Asensio met with one of those survivors who has spent three quarters of a century on a quest to rid the world of nuclear weapons. The mushroom cloud rose menacingly over Hiroshima 75 years ago today, an event seared into world history and more so in the mind of Toshiko Tanaka. She was right under that cloud, just six years old, and miraculously survived. I remember the horror of that day, blinding light like thousands of strobe lights, my body thrown to the ground. At 81, she says she's been blessed to live, her mission now banning all nuclear weapons. 75 years after surviving the bombing, I'm all the more determined to help rid the world of nuclear arms. What became Hiroshima's ground zero was once its humming commercial district of Nakajima with city hall, restaurants and cafes. Tanaka, pictured here with her father, lived close by. But on August 6, 1945, the Enola Gay Super Fortress bomber dropped its payload on the city a five-ton nuclear bomb nicknamed Little Boy. The atom bomb exploded just a third of a mile over this river, killing an estimated 80,000 people instantly and leveling about 90% of the city. But that building, now known as the Atomic Bomb Dome, was one of the few things left standing. A testament to the tragedy of war, it now stands aligned with tributes to peace, the Peace Flame and Peace Memorial Museum, newly renovated in time for the 75th anniversary. Dimmed rooms spotlight the day of the bombing. Irradiated artifacts tell the stories of those who died in an instant. Torn clothes, a tricycle, a lunch never eaten. Photographs of burn victims hang on the walls next to artwork by survivors. Through her own artwork, Tanaka still processes that fateful day 75 years ago. The United States bombed your city. Do you have any criticism for America? We were full of rage at first, but once we saw the Americans, it was clear they were just like us. Years later, she even met Clifton Truman Daniel, grandson of President Harry Truman, who ordered the bombing. There will be a time in the future when there are no more surviving Hiroshima victims. What do you want the world to remember? Eliminating nuclear weapons is the path to peace, ensuring this tragedy is never repeated. And Tanaka manages one last line in English. Please make many friends from other countries. When you do so, you are moving the world towards peace. A remarkable woman who survived a nuclear bombing, yet still has peace in her heart. For CBS This Morning, Rami Innocencio, Hiroshima, Japan. 75 years ago, but she's still pushing, right? Yeah, I mean, even just to think of the history there and the people that did survive when 80,000 plus were killed just like that. So as Brian Walsh reminds us, 
scientists moved civilization forward through their pursuit of knowledge, but Trinity demonstrated that their pursuit can inadvertently create the conditions of our own doom. Existential threats can be brought into the world not by those who wish to end it, but by those who hope to better it. Intentions don't matter for the fate of the world. Results do. And as we saw in that video there, the results for Japan were devastating with the dropping of the two bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. But the end result of this uh, sort of discovery of atomic weapons and the ending of World War II really moved us into the beginning of a global nuclear arms race. Once everyone knew that U.S. had that technology, then other races for arms picked up greater steam, with Russia detonating their first nuclear bomb in 49, followed by Great Britain in 52, France in 1960, China in 1964. And then now we also have India, Pakistan, North Korea, and Israel as additional nuclear powers, although Israel has always played down whether or not it actually has them. We know, for example, from the Stockholm International Peace Research Institute, or SIPRI, uh, their most recent 2019 yearbook, that there are estimated uh, stockpile around the world of about 13,865 nuclear weapons, with about 3,700 of those in active deployment. And 90% of those are held by the United States and Russia. So really, the nuclear arms race that began in the 1950s, excuse me, with the Cold War, really provided the cultural context and the background to where we started this class, thinking about how the Cold War era drove backyard bunker building and the desire to have you know, your own fallout shelters and gave sort of the political and economic incentives to what our earlier author Bradley Garrett referred to as the first doom boom. So this period, importantly, also saw the creation of new government institutions to respond to these emerging threats, perhaps the most significant being the Federal Civil Defense Administration, FCDA, which was essentially an earlier precursor to our current Department of Homeland Security. So we think about what the nuclear sort of snapshot looks like today. This is from the 2019 uh, CIPRI yearbook. So looking at 2018 nuclear weapon stockpiles, and as you can see by the charts here, um, the U.S. and Russia far, um, far and above have more nuclear weapons than in the, any of the other countries. The closest one being uh, China at 290 and France at 300 versus 6,500 for Russia or 6,185 for the United States. So still a significant um, number of nuclear weapons out um, in the area. And the concern about these nuclear weapons and this sort of emerging Cold War era mentality that we were talking about um, and the role that, for example, the FCDA played gave us some notable Americana such as this helpful turtle reminding us about the importance of duck and cover. Duck and cover. Be sure and remember what Bert the Turtle just did, friends, because every one of us must remember to do the same thing. That's what this film is all about. Duck and cover. Paul and Patty know this. No matter where they go or what they do, they always try to remember what to do if the atom bomb explodes right then. It's a bomb. Duck and cover. Sundays, holidays, vacation time, we must be ready every day, all the time, to do the right thing if the atomic bomb explodes. Duck and cover. That's the first thing to do. Duck and cover. First, you duck. And then, you cover. You duck and cover tight. Duck and cover under the table. It's a bomb. Duck and cover. He did what we all must learn to do. You. And you. And you. And you. Duck and cover. So it's, it seems a bit humorous now looking back on these videos from the 50s and early 60s. Um, but at the moment, there was this real hysteria amongst the American public and other you know, publics around the world of the possibility of a nuclear conflict. And so the danger, of course, as we see in looking back now at these kind of videos is in some ways how ridiculous they seem. Although we know that there is some validity to being able to duck and cover to provide some safety to yourself, if there was a real uh, nuclear conflict, those would be meaningless acts. So as Walsh notes, these plans for what came to be known as civil defense represented what sociologist Lee Clark has called fantasy documents. 
exercises that were done to give both the citizenry and the bureaucracy a sense of control, however fantastical, over the uncontrollable. And we think about, you know, similar examples. We saw how this idea of trying to gain some control over uncontrollable situations um, it was one of the motivating factors behind preppers and disaster preparedness and kind of the prepping community and more generally, which is that by prepping, you're doing something to help try to alleviate those fears and provide kind of a positive outlet for those energies that would otherwise just have us kind of stuck in this sense of um, dread from these sort of unknown or unseen threats. But unfortunately, as we saw when we looked at Truman's quotes in his diary, his hope that we would be able to harness atomic energy to usher in some new glorious era of peace was naive at best and arguably dangerous at worst, and gave us uh, several decades of escalating nuclear proliferation from the 1950s forward. So as we've discussed, the world has been on the brink of nuclear uh, conflicts several times, either due to sort of political grandstanding and bluffing or because of sheer technical mishap. Someone put in the wrong computer chip in a simulation and turned what should have been a test into a seemingly real-life exercise. And we saw this just a few years ago with the false alert missile test over Hawaii. And we come back to our Russian hero, subcommander Vasily Arkhipov, who had he not refused to be the third sort of key in that chain of command in the Russian sub off coast of Cuba in 1962, we may very well remember that moment as the beginning of World War II rather than as the Cuban Missile Crisis. But now, arguably, even more dangerous today is that there was no real nuclear plan on the part of the Pentagon and the Department of Defense. It was basically if the Russians or the Chinese attack us, we're basically just going to launch our entire nuclear arsenal at them and wipe them out in one fell swoop. And even by the Pentagon's own estimates, they calculated that it could lead to as many as 600 million people being killed. And this led uh, one nuclear scientist working at RAND by the name of Herman Kahn to refer to this as Megadeth, where U.S. policymakers are literally contemplating uh, military actions that they know will result in hundreds of millions of deaths. And as our author argues, the problem with that uh, kind of the mathematics of catastrophe is that when the numbers start to get that big, they become essentially meaningless. So one or two has a lot of significance. Millions become just statistics. Now, this threat certainly escalated during the 1980s under Reagan and sort of the U.S.-Russia uh, sort of Cold War um, conflicts. We saw this in, for example, Reagan's Strategic Defense Initiative, sort of jokingly referred to as the Star Wars program at the time which was basically the idea to create a nuclear missile shield above the United States. And this fit into this sort of escalating arms race in this concept of mutually assured destruction or MAD, which is basically, I have a lot of bombs, you have a lot of bombs, so if you attack me, I'll attack you, and we're both assured to be destroyed, and so therefore I won't do anything and you won't do anything because we're both assured that we will be destroyed. Now, on paper, that theory has worked. We haven't had a global nuclear conflict yet. Uh, but the reality is that both sides have continued to increase their nuclear stockpiles and weapons programs, and that has led to kind of a greater danger and proliferation of nuclear weapons. And by the 1970s, as the science continued to improve around understanding the sort of broader impacts of nuclear technology and atomic weapons, um, scientists really began to be worried about how a global conflict between two nuclear superpowers would impact the planet and the environment. So as Walsh notes, scientists continued to refine their climate models, and what they saw was that changes in temperature and sunlight began to look less minor and more catastrophic. And in fact, by the early 1980s, scientists had come up with a name for this, which was a nuclear winter. And the emerging scientific consensus about these dangers of a nuclear conflict uh, was enough to sway both Russian Premier Mikhail Gorbachev and then-President Ronald Reagan to seriously think about how do we reduce these threats. And so in 1986, we sort of saw the peak of um, global nuclear stockpiles at about 70,000 weapons, and then a slow decline thanks to a variety of different um, nuclear treaties, as well as sort of after 89 with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the kind of subsequent collapse of the Soviet Union, um, changing geopolitical considerations. 
Uh, certainly in the 1987 Intermediate Range Nuclear Test, Nuclear Force Treaty, excuse me, between the U.S. and Soviets helped play one role in toning down um, the rhetoric between the U.S. and Russia, but also in helping to start bring down or draw down the nuclear stockpiles, uh, often referred to as nuclear non-proliferation. And these efforts basically continued throughout the Cold War, so 60s, 70s, 80s, and then on into the 90s. So we had, for example, 1963, the Partial Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. In 1996, we had the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. And then more recently, uh, we had former um, President Obama signing the New Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty, or the New START, in 2010, which was meant to further help curb potential threats from nuclear weapons. Um, unfortunately, in recent years, we've seen kind of a reversal of those policies on the part of Washington. So, for example, in 2015, what was known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, which had been reached between Iran and uh, the five plus one members of the UN Security Council, uh, more commonly referred to as the Iran Nuclear Deal, which was a way to uh, ensure the International Energy Atomic Energy Association and um, independent monitors were able to sort of keep tabs on Iran's ostensibly domestic nuclear energy program rather than a nuclear weapons program. Um, in May 28, the U.S. announced that we were going to be withdrawing from that, and that effectively ended all third-party oversight into Iran's nuclear energy program. Then, more recently, in October 2018, the U.S. announced it was going to be pulling out entirely from that 1987 intermediate-range nuclear force treaty with Russia, and then we officially withdrew in August of last year in 2019. Uh, the new start that President Obama helped negotiate is set to expire in February of 2021 unless Congress gives it another five-year annual renew. And um, earlier this year, President Trump stated that he will not renew the treaty under its current terms. Essentially, the U.S. wants uh, China to be brought involved and they want to freeze on any future nuclear weapon developments. And Russia's basically said we're not uh, interested in um, negotiating an entirely new treaty that involves China and lots of other questions. We're happy to renew our current treaty, and the U.S. said uh, not interested. So that looks like it's likely to expire in February of this coming year. And then um, the U.S. administration has also announced that they propose to spend about $1.2 uh, trillion of additional new monies to further expand our U.S. nuclear weapons program and upgrade uh, nuclear technologies. So essentially what we've seen in the last five to 10 years is a significant backtrack and uh, sort of opposite direction from where we have been going with a decreasing reliance and emphasis on nuclear weapons and nuclear conflicts. So in addition to these kind of overt military uh, risks, there's also sort of the broader issue of nuclear contamination, some of which is what scientists were worried about in the 1980s. We saw this clearly in 2011 with the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant meltdown in Japan following the earthquake there. And, and just actually this past week, Japan announced that they're going to be um, pumping about a million or more gallons of treated but still radioactive water with tritium inside of it um, out into the Pacific Ocean because they don't have any other strategy for how to deal with it. So this is just one more example of the risks of uh, sort of atomic energy more broadly, not just military applications, um, but also economic and um, energetic applications. And then so Fukushima becomes one more in the list of growing nuclear disasters that include the 1979 Three Mile Island meltdown in Pennsylvania and the perhaps most famous 1986 Chernobyl nuclear disaster in what's now the Ukraine was Soviet Union at the time. So as Brian Walsh argued, what all this means, the changing nuclear posture, the abandonment of arms control treaties, uh, new weapons, is that the barriers to nuclear war are falling. Tactical low yield nukes are seen as quote, gateway drugs to full scale conflict. And expanding the range of attacks the United States might choose to respond to with atomic weapons blurs what should be very sharp lines around nuclear war. Firing off a single tactical nuke might seem a lot closer to ordering a conventional airstrike, something that American presidents rarely hesitate to do when confronted with a range of threats that all fall short of the existential. Once the nuclear seal has been broken, though, even by what seems like a comparatively minor bomb, no one knows what will happen next. And this is precisely the worry of many um, nuclear scholars, is that it only takes one accident or one uh, poorly planned nuclear strike 
to essentially open the floodgates on additional nuclear weapon use. And I think the 1997 report from the Canberra Commission on the Elimination of Nuclear Weapons really put the risk best when they said, the proposition that nuclear weapons can be retained in perpetuity and never used accidentally or by decision defies credibility. Well, that wraps up our lecture for week nine on supervolcanoes and nuclear threats. Well, as always, thanks for joining me. You can find more information about the content and the videos discussed in this episode in the show notes below. Thanks for watching, and I'll see you all next time.